We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're talking with Clarissa Mall, author and podcaster about finding hope in seasons of grief. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. We know that there are a lot of people in this boat right now asking, am I even going to go back to church? Right. Uh, So we're coming out of this pandemic. A lot of churches are starting to be much more normal in their meetings. Uh, And the question is, uh, here's what I think is going on. I told you this the other day. I think for a lot of people... Uh, the question is not going to be, am I going to go to another church? Am I going to go to a different church? I think that's for some people, they're going to come back and they're going to go, hey, I would like a fresh start. I'm going to go try right, the right, church up the road or right. whatever else. Uh, but I do think that there is a large segment of people for whom the question is actually this. Am I going to go back to church at all? Hmm. Uh My thought process behind that is I think people have now gone 15 months. Some people, some people can't wait to get back. To right. Church. Absolutely. So I'm yeah. talking about a segment of the population. Yeah. Uh, for some people, they've said, you know what? For 15 months, I've watched a little bit online. I've done a little bit. But for the most part, I haven't been engaging in church, at least in person on Sunday morning. Uh, and my life's OK. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And- <laughs> right. I didn't, I'm not really missing much. Yeah, I'm not going to hell. I'm not like my life is not falling apart. Uh, maybe I kind of miss the people, but I, you know, I see them on Facebook. I can listen to the preachers online or whatever else it might be. Yeah. And so the question that some people I think are probably asking, and I want us to try to answer for them. And they, uh, there's also this Gospel Coalition article where they literally ask this question: Why do we go to church? Like, why, why do, do we, we go, go at all? <laughs> why? And so, Aubrey, I guess I would start with you. You're a pastor. Yeah. Uh, but you also have a family. You have a very busy yeah. life. Yeah. And uh, you have owned the fact of, uh, while well, you guys have been online longer than most people, that you've kind of enjoyed your Sunday mornings. It's been really, really. I mean, we've been ministry for like 20 years. So this is the first time we've had Sundays as a family in 20 years. I hear know? that. Oh, so let's okay. Let's not even. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put it right on you here. Okay. So let's right, not let's put go. it on random person out there asking the question. Okay. Let's, let's pretend Aubrey that. Sampson. Yep. Let's pretend the Sampsons weren't in ministry. Okay. So Kevin, uh, Kevin, and is a plumber, and you're a teacher. Yeah. Right. And you've got your, you've got your kids. You've got your same age kids. Yep. You've had this experience. Yep. What would the conversations do you think be like for you guys as churches are reopening and things are getting back to normal? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to put myself in those shoes because it's hard not to think about church from a pastoral perspective. Right. But I, I think the question is, you know, what is church? Like we know church is more than just a Sunday morning gathering. We know that it's the people of God gathering to worship and uh, break bread, do the sacraments, study the word together. That doesn't have to happen on Sunday morning. So I do think, okay, 
for some folks that are like, yeah, I'm doing that with my small group or whatever. Why do I have to go on Sunday morning? I still think that the Sunday morning gathering where we're worshiping together Mm -hmm. is really, really crucial for our faith because it's something that this article even talks about is we just need the regular reminders of who God is and who we are, right? right. And so I'm, you know, I'm a teacher, Kevin's a plumber, our kids are the same age. We may, it may be hard for us to go back to church after having a year off, but I think ultimately we would go, wait, we need this buildup of our faith to keep living our Christian lives or else we're going to like not be okay, (laughs) you know? So I, I, I mean, and I think it's okay to admit that we are like frail human beings and we so easily forget. And so part of the weekly rhythm of gathering together, worshiping together, breaking bread together is just this reminder of like, wait, we're Christians. We belong to Jesus. Let's keep going. God is good. And then we need that again on Sunday. Yes. This article, first of all, it references Barna research that kind of backs up what we're talking about. According to Barna, approximately one in three Christians have stopped attending church altogether, whether in person or online during the pandemic. An additional third have admitted to streaming a different church service online Whoa, other than wow. their own. Wow. Digitally church hopping, basically reflecting a certain consumeristic mindset endemic to much of evangelical church. So the article tries to set up the fact that we have kind of a weak connection mm. to the gathered worship and to mm. kind of the, the church as a whole. And, and I think that you bring up some good stuff and they, they say it succinctly in this, in this article. Why do we go to church? They answer their question this way. We go to church because we are forgetful, Hmm. because we don't remember. And you said it very well there. We worship, we break bread, we we gather together, we, we praise the name of Jesus, we sit under the teaching of the word. Then we go through our Monday through Saturday, life happens, it's hard. You know, you're gathering maybe in small group or whatever else, but, but the point of then gathering again on Sunday is to, is to be reminded and to be uh, recharged and to be sent out again. And it's kind of this rhythm of, all right, I I get filled up, I get reminded, then I go, and then I get, you know, I come back. And uh, I do worry, uh, almost linking the two conversations we had, like the one we just had about apathy, I think removal from the local church and regular gathering to worship will lead over time to apathy. Like they're going to go hand in hand uh, because we're forgetful people. And over and over, I love that it talks about this in this article, especially in the Old Testament. It just keeps saying, God says over and over again, do not forget. Right. Do remember, forget. remember, remember, remember. It's like hundreds of times throughout scripture, God says that to his people. And here's the thing. God would not say that if we were not forgetful right, people. Right, right. Uh, we get, we become forgetful. Do you think that's a good enough reason to attend church just to uh, to go, hey, I'm a forgetful person and therefore I need to be reminded. Yes, I think that's a good enough reason. I think even sometimes we can overthink like, why do we go to church? And then that can be an excuse not to go. Whatever reason you go, just go. Just get you to church. You know, I I think part of the other other side of this conversation is a conversation about consumer culture and and individualism, Mm. which of course we've brought up on the common good a lot. But like, if we have the choice to just choose between different church services digitally. And then we're no longer 
uh, entering into Christian community with people right around us, we have seen how that does not go well. Like that promotes individualism, that promotes consumerism, and that doesn't allow for community, for accountability, yes. for service together, for even sharing the gospel with non-Christian neighbors. Like there is more to church than just watching a good sermon online. That's right. That's right. That's right. The article here written by Peter Newman. I just want to end by uh, reading how it ends. Graduate of Wheaton College, by the way. Oh, there you hey, go. Hey, look at and that. One our of our alma people. mater. Yeah. <laughs> For yeah. Christ in his He's kingdom. our person. He's our person. Here we go. He says this. In a world like this, increasingly artificial, distracting, and in a way unreal, if we don't carve out at least one day a week to be powerfully reminded of our place in the Christian story, then our already fragile, fickle, and forgetful hearts will invariably stray from this story. In a world so often distorted by online life, we need to, we need the clarifying force of God's word, read, preached, prayed, sung, and tasted. To stay in and live out God's story, we need to remember it. And to remember it, we need to go to church. I think that that sums article. it up yeah. really well there by Peter Newman at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, apathy and also, are we going to go back to church? They're kind of linked together. And I think that's a big question for us today. Yeah, that's good. Good word, Brian. Well, stick around. We are joined by Clarissa Mall. She's an author. She's the co-host of Christianity Today Surprised by Grief podcast. She's the host of the Weekly Hope Writers podcast. And she has experienced some very serious grief in her life. She's going to talk to us about finding hope in the middle of those seasons. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Clarissa Mall. Clarissa is an author, also the co-host of Christianity Today's Surprised by Grief podcast, along with uh, Daniel Harrell. Uh, we're also going to talk a bit to Clarissa about an article she wrote at the Gospel Coalition entitled Life is Reopening. Why am I so sad? So, so much we want to talk to Clarissa about. But let me just say hello, Clarissa. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we dive into all of that, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. So I am an author and podcaster. I'm the wife and widow of former CT editor Rob Mall. Um, my husband, Rob, fell to his death in a hiking accident in mm. 2019 on our family vacation. Uh, so while I had a career in nonprofit marketing and communications telling the stories of nonprofits, uh, since his death, I've pivoted to offering companionship grief support as oh. opposed to clinical. There's there's a lot of clinical grief support out there, but what we find when we're grieving is we just often need someone to walk alongside of us and mm -hmm. uh, tell us that we're not crazy, we're not alone, yeah. um, that this is hard, but somehow God is good. And yeah. uh, so it's been a privilege to walk with folks over the last two years as I have written and spoken. Um, it's a road I never hoped to travel, but right. I have to say I've been surprised by the gifts that God has given along the way. Mm. Mm. Clarissa, that was actually going to be one of my questions. So you segued into that. Um, in your season of grief and as you're walking with other people in their grief, what do you feel like are some of the very surprising ways that God has shown up? 
Well, I think um, one of the things that has surprised me most has been in the reality of how hard death actually is. You know, as Christians, we like to talk a lot about heaven, about our eternal hope. But, uh, you know, if you are grieving, you meet Jesus at the cross. You meet the wounded mm. Savior. You meet mm. the one who uh, has faced this absolutely hideous thing that has befallen you. And, uh, and he's done it for you. And I think there's just such um, a surprising grace that is found in that space where uh, you meet the Savior who is wounded, not the triumphant King necessarily, although that is our hope, but uh, the real companion in sorrow is Jesus himself. And I have to say that's one place that I was surprised. I thought that in grief, uh, I would just turn my eyes to the horizon and and look to heaven as the thing mm-hmm. that kind of pulled me forward. But really, I've found that it's okay to grieve as long as you need to, as hard as it is, because you know that in the dirt, when you're sitting on that bathroom floor, uh, that mm. Jesus is with you. That's right. That's beautiful. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And Clarissa, so I wonder... Uh, especially right after your husband passed away, but I'm sure even in in all of this time since then, how hard was it to believe at times that God is good? And and how did how would you go about reminding yourself of that or holding on to that truth, even when it was hard to believe? Well, I think there are two ways that I've I've tried to do that. Um, First, uh, I like to use the phrase rehearsing these things to our hearts, rehearse the truth mm-hmm. to your heart, because I think a lot of times we feel like we can't say that God is good unless we feel it. And I think that there's a, a real truth to repeating the words, even when it's hard to believe, uh, s- saying back to your soul, God is good. I will trust him. God is good. Mm. I will trust him. Even when it's hard to believe, because uh, we know that our faith is not dependent on our feelings. And so in the darkness, uh, the darkness does not mean that God is not good. It just means that life is really hard. Yeah. And, um, and I think second, surrounding myself with a community of believers who sang that song when I couldn't sing it myself has been such a gift to stand in worship and hear uh, folks sing and pray and read about God's goodness when I felt like the bottom had dropped out of my own life. Mm -hmm. Uh, That trajectory pulls you forward. And I think that's where the body of Christ is is such a particular gift to people who are suffering uh, because they speak the words that maybe we don't even believe anymore, but we yeah. desperately need to hear. Oh, so good, Clarissa. You know, I, I'm just sitting here thinking of the listener that maybe is in a really, really heavy season or of, of grief, or perhaps walking with someone who is, and they're hearing you and they want to know that God is there, but it sort of feels like they're praying to the ceiling fan at this point. What words of encouragement would you offer them? I would say keep talking, mm. talking. Uh, there, it is when we experience what we feel like is radio silence that we can speak into that silence, and that's where I think the practice of lament is so valuable uh, to pour out all of who we are, even if it feels like it's to the ceiling. Uh, that's right. Say your angry words, say your frustrated words, say your despairing words, because the truth is that even when we feel like they're just bouncing off the walls and coming back to us at an echo, uh, we are heard by God. His He says uh, in the Psalms that he collects our tears in a bottle, and uh, we know that he is listening even when we don't feel like he is. Yeah. 
Clarissa, I always found it so powerful. A lot of us know your husband's story. We, you know, we read about it or whatever else. And I always found it so um, powerful that he wrote a book called The Art of Dying. Uh, and, and so I would love for you to be able to talk about that book because I'd love for people to go get it. Like, go, go to Amazon and search it out. Could you tell us about your husband's first book, The Art of Dying? Sure. It seems like, uh, I guess in the world, we would say a serendipity or an iconic <laughs> coincidence that 10 years before his death, he would write a book about dying. Uh, but Rob had covered the Terry Schiavo case with Christianity Today, and mm. he saw uh, Christians wrestling with end-of-life issues, uh, compassionate death, and he mm. felt like there was a real vacuum in, um, in church conversation beyond ethics, what it meant to be a Christian, uh, to walk with a Christian who was dying. And so he became a hospice volunteer. He began working at a funeral home in the, on the night shift uh, wow. in, in downtown Wheaton. And he, um, and he wanted to understand what it meant for us to live with hope in the face of death. And so he wrote this book. It was a large part of the early part of our marriage. We talked a lot about death and dying as 30 wow. things, uh, you know, with little kids <laughs> running around. Uh, and, and yet, you know, as, as I come to this place now, 11 years later, I think, boy, I'm so glad that we had those conversations. I'm so glad that his book exists to begin a conversation that for most folks is really taboo because yeah. it's been helpful for me in my own grief journey uh, to be prepared for death, perhaps not prepared for grief, but prepared for what was to come uh, because mm. death will come to us all. Yeah. Mm. Again, the name of Clarissa's late husband's book is The Art of Dying. And Clarissa, you have a book coming out in the spring. Are you able to talk about it yet? Yes. <laughs> so I've got a book uh, still waiting to be titled coming out in the spring with Tyndale. Uh, practical grief support. You know, there's a lot of practical grief support out there in the world, but much of it is anti-Christian. It, it uh, doesn't like a transformational sense of suffering. It uh, doesn't want to talk about meaning beyond this life. And mm. I saw there was a real hole there uh, for Christians to receive practical advice and help from someone who's walking the path with them, but also infused with uh, a gospel hope that is very much um, empty and, and missing from traditional grief support. That's great. Again, we're joined by Clarissa Mall. She is co-host of Christianity Today's Surprise by Grief podcast. Uh, she is also an author. You can find more at clarissamall.com. That's M-O-L-L, clarissamall.com, and connect with her also on Instagram or in other social media places. We're thrilled to have you stay with us. You recently wrote an article this week at the Gospel Coalition called Life is Reopening, Why Am I Still So Sad? As we're, as we're coming out of this pandemic, life is getting more, quote unquote, normal. Uh, are you finding that a lot of people are still feeling really sad? And why do you think that is? Because you'd think as life gets more normal, people would be like all excited and happy. So what, are, what is it that you're seeing out there? That's so true. You know, I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, is that we've got a, 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 some fatigue here, <laughs> some grief yeah. fatigue. Uh, we've been doing this hard thing for a year and a half, and I think folks are just plain tired. And it's hard to pivot from tired to celebratory in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Uh, we need the time to reverse patterns of uh, physical touch and proximity and, and even feeling a sense of safety with one another that can make us feel uneasy. And that's hard to just turn quickly and, and reopen. But I think there's also another element. You know, uh, there are approximately 5.4 million folks 
who are grieving just in the U.S. over uh, the death of loved ones from COVID. And I receive emails and, and direct messages um, frequently from folks who have lost loved ones. And so the celebration that we feel perhaps in being able to take off a mask or reenter church, uh, it's not necessarily shared by everyone in the pews. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think my article is, is a call to sensitivity, not only to a sensitivity for ourselves as we experience grief in reentry, but also to the, the grief that is among us and around us, sometimes often very quiet now because of a pandemic that unfortunately has become politicized in many ways. Mm. Um, Clarissa, I, you know, going back to what we were talking about before with kids and even now kids processing the world opening up again. You, when you lost your husband, you said your kids were fairly little. How old were they? That's right. My daughter had just turned seven. Um, okay. My son was 11. I had a 13-year-old and, or I'm sorry, no, it was 7, 10, 12, and 14. So okay. young, yeah. So that's, that's fairly young to process a daddy's death and a sudden death. And then... Um, just to process grief in general. And I guess I'm wondering for parents out there who don't know how to walk their kids through maybe some um, feelings of grief, even around the pandemic. Do you have wisdom for those parents? Well, kids' grief is very different from adults' grief. A lot of times we think that uh, our children are experiencing the same things the way that we are experiencing them. Uh, but children grieve in very different ways. Many times kids have what I like to call popcorn grief, where it pops up and then it goes mm. away. We think, oh, it's all gone. And oh, there it there it arises again. And so I think as our kids re-enter after the pandemic, that's an important thing to watch for, to realize that uh, a grief expression is not a one and done, that they may need to go over some of these things from time to time for the next couple of years, even as they readjust and grow. Uh, many kids have experienced a full developmental shift in the year and a half since the pandemic began. You know, a kid who was young has maybe gone through puberty now, and that's a big shift. And uh, we need to be able to acknowledge those changes and give our kids the time and space to grieve in the ways that they need to, knowing that uh, children are resilient and that they are built to um, to grow and progress and uh, and that their inward design is for fortitude through difficult things. Yeah. And, and Clarissa, in this article, as you as you try to give people some practical wisdom on what to do as we come out of the pandemic and, you know, they're still feeling sad. I, I love in your list, you talk about root yourself in memories of God's goodness, kind of this looking back and this memory of, of what we have in scripture of who God is and what he has done in the past. Can you unpack that for people, the importance of remembering the memories of God's goodness? Well, that's right. You know, when you're grieving, it feels like the world is running a mile a minute and mm -hmm. everyone is rushing forward and you just can't keep up that pace. And so I, I like to remind folks, if you're grieving, don't bother. Don't bother. Slow down. And if you can't look forward, simply look to the past. I love the repetition in the Old Testament of the Lord your God has redeemed you. It's words that we hear uh, over the, uh, that's recited during the Passover feast. And we hear them throughout the Old Testament because the children of Israel and we need reminders that God has been good. And so mm. even if you don't feel it now, don't try to 
pin a happy face or smile when you don't feel like it. Instead, turn backward. Look to the places in your life where God has been faithful as a, as a sign and commitment that what he's done in the past, he will do again, even as mm. you wait for that to happen. Oh, I love that. Such a practical word. Um, Clarissa, you know, we've been talking about personal tragedy. I want to step back a little bit and talk about uh, national tragedies and disasters. We've all been watching the news in Miami right now of the condo collapse. And I wonder what you would say to offer any sense of encouragement or hope for families that are still searching for loved ones there. You know, it's, I I think uh, it brings me back to those moments where I was waiting to hear back Mm. from my husband. Uh, I waited for hours to hear that he was okay. I texted and called. And it wasn't until the chaplains arrived at my campsite where I knew that the news wouldn't be good. Mm. But uh, I know even just a microcosm of that waiting that these families are enduring. And... um, and you know there are there are so few words that offer solace in those really dark hard moments uh but god is there god is in the darkness with you and um and even when you do not feel his presence the reality is that he is there and he promises to be with us in the valley of the shadow and in your valley of the shadow he is with you and um you know if those are words that you can rehearse to your heart you know he's with me in the valley of the shadow he's with me in the valley of the shadow. Uh, They can be words of comfort that allow you to stand on God's promises, even in the very hard waiting and the inevitability sometimes of um, of that, that reality that you've been dreading. Yeah. And Clarissa, we're so grateful for the time you've spent with us. Before we let you go, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the podcast that you co-host? Again, we said it's Christianity Today's new podcast called Surprised by Grief. What can, what can you tell us about that podcast? I'm super excited about Surprised by Grief. It seems weird to be surprised or excited (laughs) about grief, but, you know, I feel like uh, we're we're ready to help the church become fluent in words of consolation. We are ready Mm. after a pandemic, after experiencing personal grief to get better at letting grief come to church, letting all of our hurt be seen and heard in the church and uh, receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit and eternal hope. So I think Surprised by Grief is an opportunity to folks to just kind of get a peek into Daniel and my life as a widow and widower and uh, to see how God is working, where love is leading us, and uh, hopefully to have an opportunity to, in a really non-confrontational way, practice getting used to having grief and death in the room. Mm, wow. That's powerful. Again, it's called Surprised by Grief. You can get that wherever it is you get your podcast. Also, you can follow Clarissa uh, at clarissamall.com. Again, that's clarissamall.com. She writes at Gospel Coalition and other places. Clarissa, it is so good to meet you. Thank you for taking time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Francis Chan. Give us a, give us a thumbnail sketch. Your thoughts on Francis Chan, because we're going to hear him uh, be in his most Francis Chanian, his very passionate <laughs> 
uh, ways that Francis Chan in, but help people understand who Francis Chan is. That's what I think about Francis Chan. I think passion. Mm -hmm. This is a man who could be the, I mean, it really could be a celebrity pastor, right? He's got all the skills, all the wherewithal, all the preaching ability, what have you. But over the course of his life has continued to just say, no, 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 no. His, you know, church got big, left it, started a small church, (laughs) decided at that point, then he, he, now he's on the mission field, right? Like he just continues to choose the way of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus more than he chooses his own celebrity and following and career, which I really admire about him. The reality is, though, he has so much wisdom and so much anointing that mm-hmm. people keep coming to him to learn. And so, you know, he's in a he's in a really interesting place, but a great pastor, really committed to, I think, faithfulness yeah. when it comes to Jesus and integrity when it comes to following Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. The, the pastor that I started our church with, he's no longer at a church. But Dave, uh, we went to Exponential a couple of times and uh, Exponential Conference. It's a church planning conference. I know you've been to it. Yeah. I think I think you've spoken at it. Yeah, right? I've spoken at it a couple of times. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've never ever invited me. I'm still waiting on that one. But uh, he, uh, <laughs> one day, Brian, exactly something to strive for. So Francis Chan was one of the main speakers at like one of the more monumental, like kind of the one of the first ones we went to. And it was an unbelievable. I, I played it for our whole launch team. Like it was this transformational thing. Mm. But if you ever watch Francis Chan, he's all about arm movements. And so we, we became we started mimicking the Francis Chan. <laughs> Stop, arm really? Movements. Yes. <laughs> So perfect. Oh, that's so funny. It is. But here's why we bring this up. Francis Chan, he wrote a new book called Until Unity. And uh, I want you to hear, this is a little bit longer clip than we normally play. It's three minutes because it's so good. Francis Chan talking about John chapter 13 through 17. Uh, he's talking, he's doing an interview here with Preston Sprinkle. So listen to what Francis Chan has to say here. I am not saying truth doesn't matter. I'm just saying, okay, this morning, for example, I am just infatuated with John 13 through 17. Um, in this season of my life, like I can't get out of it, which also was amazing because I memorized John uh, 13 to 17 when I was 14 years old. Bible oh, wow. things. 40 years later, I'm like, this is all I want to think about. I want to know every word of this because it is so deep. And I didn't realize how deep it was. Um, so powerful. And I'm even reading this morning in John 14 when he's saying, you know, when Thomas says, hey, we don't know the way where you're going. And Jesus, I, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And he doesn't say, you don't know the way. Well, here you, you go here, you do this or you do this and then this and then this and then you'll get there. He says, no, I am the way. But then he says, I am the truth. And I never thought about this. See, when I think about truth, I think about all those books behind you. Mm -hmm. That if I want to know truth, I need to read all those books behind you. Um, And then there's a trillion articles online. (laughs) And if I really read all of those and figured out who was telling that, that's how I figure out truth. And yet Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am Mm. the truth. It's just like you don't learn directions to heaven. You don't learn just, it's not just let me get more information. He himself, it's the person, it's knowing Jesus. Otherwise, we're saying the illiterate can't know truth. 
and all the generations didn't have all these books can't know truth. And I, I just even this morning, God was showing me like you really still are stuck in this post enlightenment um, education mind. This is the way truth. And and there's something deeper. There's something deeper. Like right now, as people are listening, it's not just about you and me saying bits of information and them getting it into their ears and into their cognitive reasoning. And now they know truth. No, we're talking about something else that has to happen by the spirit to enter into the inner man. And that's not the way I was raised. Mm. I was raised with strict information and because you have to be more, you have to be logical enough to figure out who's a little bit off and who, you know, and so now I'm the center of logic and it's up to me rather than knowing this person, like knowing him, really knowing him. That's what he was saying. I am the way I am the truth. I'm the life. Life doesn't come by doing all these things. Life comes from knowing me and I will abide. I'll live in you. All right, Aubrey, I love that kind of mm-hmm. idea of what is the difference between knowing a lot about God, this kind of yeah. enlightened post enlightenment, this, this knowledge, this, that's what the truth is. This knowledge about God versus this knowledge of God, this deeply knowing God and his kind of idea that that can really be a struggle, especially here in the West where we got all the books and all the articles and everything you could ever deal with. But that is kind of at the essence, at the foundation of our faith, isn't it this difference between knowing Jesus Mm -hmm. and knowing a lot about Jesus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the difference between mental assent, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like having good theology, knowing a lot about doctrine, which I would say, especially in our area in Chicago, where we're surrounded by Trinity and Moody and Wheaton, like there's so many thinkers. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I think we just, if we believe and know the right things, then we're saved. But the reality is it's not about what we know. It's about allegiance to Christ mm-hmm. and our unity with him through the Holy Spirit and our unity with the Father through the Holy Spirit and then our unity with one another. Um, and it's just a good reminder because sometimes you can just think, oh, the more I consume, the more I learn, the more facts I know, the more interesting theology I, I consume. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it sounds so simple, but the end of the day is really about a relationship and an awe and a worship and a service of Jesus Christ himself. Absolutely. And, and there's nothing wrong with knowledge. Knowledge That's, is a I love good knowledge. Thing, yeah. Uh, but knowledge is not the end goal. It's this mm-hmm. idea of knowing of a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. It's this being connected to the vine, right? Uh, This idea of being in him, being in Christ. And you brought up the idea of awe. Later on, again, this is an hour plus of of an interview, but later on he talks about as we kind of become centered under this awe, he uses the word awe. As awe becomes, uh, grows in us, as we become people who running after knowing God deeply, that's what brings unity inside the church. Like as you're running after God and I'm Mm, running after God and mm. we're kind of worshiping and knowing him more deeply, it will naturally draw us together. It will bind us together. That's so good. Yeah. He kind of holds up awe as, uh, as the, the ingredient for unity. You know, we're often talking about what's going to unify us. John 17, where do we find our unity? And his contention in this book is, uh, it's as we grow in our awe 
mm-hmm. and our knowledge, uh, not just our knowledge about God, but our knowledge of him and our relationship with him. And then it, it brings it about. So I would just challenge you. I wanted to play this to allow us all to look in the mirror and go, am I just, do I just know a lot about God yeah. or, or am I, am I striving for a relationship with God? Yeah. Uh, where's my level of awe? So hopefully you found that helpful. Well, Coming up next, we're going to have a little discussion about marriage. We're both married, both been married 20 plus years. Uh, We're going to look at uh, some ideas about how do you make marriage work? How how do you have a long-lasting marriage? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to be joined by Dr. Caroline Leaf as we talk about anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. One of the things that I try to implore people as they are doing premarital counseling, when they are engaged, because I remember feeling this myself, there's somewhere along the lines, we can blame Disney for this, right? This is what we as Christians do. We blame Disney, but uh, I think, I you're like, where are we going with this? Right. I love Disney. Uh, uh, Disney. Blame fa- I, know which, I know where you're going with this. They've given us this idea that, that once you have that wedding, you're going to live happily ever after. Right, Everything right. is happily ever after. Right. And here's what I always try to tell people in premarital counseling. The the wedding day is the beginning. It's not the end. Yeah, that's good. It's not the start, but there's so much, especially with weddings. And uh, usually it's you women trying to like figure out everything you ever dreamed for a wedding. And uh, I want to argue with that. Well, I do. I want to argue with that because that feels very sexist. But we do enough premarital counseling. <laughs> and I just did my sister's wedding that I'm like, yep, yep, it's true. true. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Sometimes seemingly uh, bad comments are actually true. Yeah. Right? So, uh, that, that we think when we get to the wedding, I've made it. Now we go on a honeymoon, and the rest of my life is going to be yeah, like this honeymoon. Yeah, I've arrived. Might, might I'm complete. Kids, right? Yeah, we might add a couple kids. Right, the old Jerry Maguire. You complete me. Uh, and then what happens is you get into marriage and you have to figure out how to live with this other person. <laughs> right. Then you're married. <laughs> I, I remember when we first did premarital counseling, we told our our premarital counselor we'd never been in a fight before. And, and we did they laugh that was at like, you? Yes, we thought this was like a badge of honor. Yeah. We got in our first fight. Uh, the week we were home from our honeymoon. Awesome. Uh, and it was had to do with the really important topic of how long dirty dishes could stay in the sink before they needed to be washed. <laughs> That's important. Those are the things that make a marriage. That was then followed up by how long can laundry stay in a laundry basket before it needs to be washed. Yep, and I yep. thought I was right on that one because we were in an apartment where you had to pay to get your laundry done. But oh, wow. You were not right on that one, I'm now, guessing. Looking back, I don't know why Carrie stayed with me in that first year. Like There were enough times... <laughs> Where you're like, my goodness, you yep. married a child. Yep. And so uh, here's the question. Uh, and and there, Tim Keller wrote a great article that was posted at, uh, at Relevant that's just titled this. Uh, Tim Keller, who we read here often, he wrote this. You never marry the right person. Mm. You never marry the right person, which is a sobering title. Right. Which is a sobering title. But here's the conversation I want to have. How does, how does marriage make it? If you believe the statistics that 50% of marriages end in divorce, which yeah. might be high, but it might be 40%, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. If marriages uh, have a high trajectory towards divorce, uh, I think it's because there's a lack of realism going into it. Yeah. And so the question is, 
if Keller's right, you never marry the right person. If you and I are right that it's not ha- happily ever after, some people could be listening to that and be like, well, why would I ever get married? <laughs> it's so depressing, what right? That's yeah. the point. And so uh, how do you answer? How do you think that through? How have you and Kevin made it 20 plus yeah. years? Uh, if, if Keller's right here that you don't marry the right person, how have you guys done it? Um. <laughs> Oh, marriage is hard. Uh, period. We all know this who have been married. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot famously said that uh, married people are people who forgive each other every single day for the rest of their lives. Mm. And I feel like forgiveness and self-sacrifice are two of the biggest tools in marriage that really... You do have to sort of just get over that. Did I marry the right person? Did I marry the wrong person? Thought process. Just delete it from your brain because that's not a helpful question. The reality is you're married, so you're in. Therefore, you're married to the right person. The person you married is the right person. So then you have to do the work, right? And the work often involves sacrificing yourself and forgiving the other person and asking for forgiveness. I, I would say, too, I mean, you know, we're joking about the dishes and the laundry, but those really are the things that make a marriage. 100%. And if you can honor the other person with those things that seem simple, sometimes annoying, if you can choose to love the other person in those small ways, you will bear so much fruit That's in right. your marriage. Because those are really the moments when, like, push comes to shove. Am I going to love this person? Am I going to serve them? Yeah. And then I would say, I mean, you know, Kevin and I, I would say a few years ago, right after my cousin Cameron died, which I talked about last week, and I was really sick. It was a low point in marriage for us because it just changed everything. Mm. I mean, my illness tr- transformed our marriage for that couple years. So we were in marriage counseling for a long time, just really like, we don't know how to make it through unless mm. someone else helps us make it that's through. Right. And right. and I think that's a key. If you need help, get help. Mm-hmm. Like we, are, you know, if you've been married long enough, you need help, period. And so for us, that gave us the tools to get back to like communication, loving each other, uh, putting the other first and just... I think sometimes we can operate in marriage without like investing in each other's emotional banks or physical banks. And you have to sometimes like reset and start doing those things again. That's really good. Uh, Keller writes, the Christian answer to this is that no two people are compatible. Right. So you might be like, okay, then how do I marry the right person? Not the point of the article. The point of the article is you're not going to because no two people are compatible. Uh, It made me think uh, to your story there. I had a buddy who said this to me. He said, uh, we were talking about marriage counseling and, and how some people are hesitant to get it. He said, listen, what I tell people is I can either pay for a marriage counselor or a divorce lawyer. Mm. It's going to be one of the two. <laughs> That's good. And if I have to pay for a divorce lawyer, my wife's probably getting half of what I have. So he's like, I'm going to pay. <laughs> Might as well invest in the marriage. So he said it a little bit tongue in cheek, but that was his reasoning that they've been in a long standing marriage counseling. Yeah. I've heard it from other people as to like, you get your car tuned up. Yeah. Like you do these kinds of things. I know in my own marriage, Carrie and I have been married for 21 uh, and a half year. I don't think you say half anymore when it's that you many can. years. You can. That's it's good. We've been married for 21 years, and I, I it's the greatest thing I've been a part of. Right? I love my marriage, but yeah. it's also the hardest thing at yeah. oftentimes. And and when I make it difficult on us is when I get really selfish. I know totally. that when I'm thinking like she is not doing what I want, <laughs> or man, why won't she like X? Or yeah, this yeah, and yeah. And then the reverse is true. And what often happens is if we're in a bad spot, we're both being really selfish. Yeah, and it grows course. on each other. And at some point, one of us needs to go, hey, let's just talk about this. And then you realize, oh, I do love this person. Okay, yeah. let's talk about this. But yeah. some of us can get so dug in that we're like, nope, never going to talk about this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, what just happened? And hey, if you don't have kids out there, by the way, and you're young married, 
They complicate things. Kids complicate things. They bring up things you never even knew you were going to have to deal with. All of a sudden, you're thinking about your own childhood or your grandma or kids trigger things. But don't you say, I love that you said that, Brian. It's the greatest thing you've ever been a part of. I would say that, too. I mean, I love my marriage, and Kevin and I have fought for our marriage, and there is reward for staying in, leaning in, fighting, doing the good, hard work of communication and loving and forgiveness. There is reward for it. And it's not just like reward in heaven. There is earthly reward. You enjoy your spouse more. You build a foundation. You're on mission together. You're married. Your best friend. Yes, that makes it worth it. Yeah. If I could go back in time, 21 plus years ago, and I was standing at that altar, and you gave me, I would a hundred times out of a hundred say I do. Yes. Even if I knew everything, I would a hundred out yeah. of a hundred say I want to marry this person. Yeah. And and it's going to be awesome. Doesn't mean it's not hard at right. times. And right. I think sometimes as Christians we don't acknowledge that the marriage can be tough. Marriage can be tough, but man, is it worth it. And so I think when we get over ourselves going, oh, it's going to be happily ever after, it's just not the case. And so we put this article up because I think it's anything Keller writes, I think is worth reading. But man, it's it's really good. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Dr. Caroline Leaf, author of a new book called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five Simple Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking. We're going to talk to her about how do we do that? How do we reduce anxiety, stress, these things that so many of us are struggling with? We're going to do that next with Dr. Caroline Leaf here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a new book called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five Simple Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking. She's also the host of a popular podcast called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. That is Dr. Caroline Leaf. Caroline, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for inviting me. How are you all doing? We are doing doing wonderful. We are doing great, and we're glad to have you on. Hey, before we start talking about your book, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Absolutely. Well, I am a cognitive neuroscientist and communication pathologist, and what that is is someone who has uh, researched the mind-brain connection for nearly 38 years now. Mm. I worked in clinical practice for 25 years, and I've been doing research for 38 years on trying to understand the mind and the brain and the difference between the mind and the brain and how do we control this and what are thoughts and memories and how do we deal with mental health and emotions, all those all those kinds of things. So it's, it's been a 38-year journey mm. and a um, very exciting one. Oh, it's so fascinating, Dr. Leaf. So we're coming out of the pandemic here and what we're hearing, what it seems like is there is a lot of anxiety and stress mm-hmm. and that toxic thinking right now. So I think your book is just so perfect, so timely. Talk to us about why mental health matters, especially for such a time as this. Well, I think that mental health matters, you know, it's a great question, and mental health matters at any stage. So since the beginning of time, mankind has battled with mental, with mental, with their mind. Mm-hmm. So it's not anything unusual. It's just every generation goes through some kind of challenge. So, you mm-hmm. know, we happen to have faced the pandemic, that there's been wars, there's been, I mean, every, you know, everyone can talk about something that they have faced. So what I like to do is change the whole narrative. Instead of saying that mental health is on, ill health is on the rise, and, you know, it's kind of a whole scare 
scary thing. There's this whole scary thing around mental illness and it's a brain disease and it's on the rise. There's always something new happening. And it's not new. It's something that's been around since the beginning of time. It's ancient. Mm. People have always battled with their minds because bad things have always happened. And we have free will as, as humans, so we make bad choices. We, you know, So I try and explain this in a very, very different way and look at, and if you look at the scientific backing of what I say, it's honestly 150 years of modern research and then years and years and years and years, thousands of years of ancient research mm. confirm that the mind and the brain are two separate things. Mm. They work together. The mind is our, basically our sort of spiritual soul part of us. It's the biggest part of us. It's the difference between being alive and dead. Mm. And, it, and the brain and the body are how we express. Um, it's the connection between the mind, brain, and body, wow. which enables us to be able to express ourselves as humans. And we build thoughts with our minds. And our minds are how we experience life. Without a mind, you can't experience life. Wow. So every moment that you're awake, you're experiencing life through your mind and converting that through your mind into the brain as physical thought trees made of proteins that look like trees in the garden. Hmm. And these trees basically, um, are, the roots are the experiences of life and the branches are the interpretation of those experiences. Hmm. And um, so, you know, we, we have a toxic experience, we build these toxic thoughts into our brain. If we have a healthy experience, we build healthy thoughts into our brain. <sighs> And you know that's it. So, and it's a process that is not spoken about enough. We we kind of have this thing of oh, mental health and depressions and illness. Meanwhile, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, all these things are symptoms or warning signals of an underlying cause. Mm. It's life, and all of us experience it. It's not just four percent of people experiencing depression. All of us experience depression, anxiety, panic attacks, obviously to varying degrees because we have different experiences. Right. But let's live the playing field. Let's be honest. Let's all accept that we battle. And let's help each other and understand how to manage our minds. Mm. So okay. and that's, well, that's the narrative of, of what I teach and research and write about and so on. Fascinating. Caroline, uh, like you said, if, um, you know, the point of your book is to help reduce anxiety, stress, toxic thinking, and, and you give five simple steps, what would be the first step? If somebody out there right now is going, I'm overwhelmed, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, whatever else it might be, what is kind of step number one that you would encourage people to do? Okay, so great question too. And the first thing I would just, if I may just step back and to get your mind prepared, it's so important that you prepare your brain, which is different from your mind, as I've been saying, mm-hmm. and your body yeah. and your mind. So the, the way you come into dealing with yourself and your mind as humans, the way we do it is, is with a lot of kindness. So the first thing is to be kind to oneself and to recognize, hey, we all go through this. Mm. And the second thing, second sort of mindset or attitude coming into the into the five-step process, so be kind. And the second thing is that we all battle, so this is part of being human. And then the third thing is that if you look at all the warning signals like depression, anxiety, pain in your gut, uh, changes in your behavior, changes in your perspective of life, all of those, if you see them as warning signals rather than a brain illness, which they're not. The science is very clear that they're not brain illnesses. Hmm. The brain will be affected. I mean, your brain does get changed. You, 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 uh, with every toxic thought, your brain changes. But the source is not your brain. The source is the experience. And so if the source is the experience and the mind is how we process the experience, then what we need to do is recognize that we make a mess. That's why I talk about messy mind. Hmm. And that's okay. That's part of the experimentation of life. Is It's, it's one big kind of experiment. And so it's okay to have a messy mind, but we mm. need to manage it. So the neuro cycle then is how we, is the five-step process that is a system that I've developed over meticulous research over 38 years and clinical application for 25 years and, and longer, actually, um, on how to actually do this. 
So the very first thing that you would do then is to have those that, you know, kind, everyone battles with this, it's not an illness, it's okay, that mindset, very important, because the minute you approach it like that, you you change 1,400 neurophysiological responses in wow. your brain and your body, you increase your resilience and you can't have a completely different setup, versus if you say, oh, I'm having a panic attack, there's something wrong with me, I've got a brain disease, I've got clinical depression, that will make 1,400 neurophysiological responses work against you, and you've already, like, almost shot yourself in the foot before you've even started. Mm. So I always like to tell people the way you approach this is very important. The second thing is you have to prepare your brain. Your brain is a physical organ. It needs to have enough oxygen and blood flow and brain waves flowing correctly. So a two to three minute brain preparation, which could be breathing, meditation, anything like that, just to sort of calm down your chaos in your, in, in your brain from toxic experiences mm. is really important to do. And I give lots of examples in the book and in, in the app, the NeuroCycle app that goes with the book. And then the very first step is to gather awareness. And the words are so, so important that I'm saying here. Gather. I haven't just said be aware. There's so much about mindfulness and awareness. Mindfulness is just being aware of what's going on in your body. You have to go beyond that. You have to go be mindful of what you are actually, all the warning signals. So it's basically taking the time to sit down and to actually evaluate the patterns in your life. Gather awareness. I think of it like this. If you were going into an apple orchard and you were going apple picking, you would have a basket and you would select your apples and put them in your basket. Mm. That's, how you do, that's how you do step one. You stand back with your messy mind, giving yourself all this acceptance that I spoke about in kindness, and then recognize that you have a wise mind. We all have this inner core wisdom. We call it the optimism bias in neuropsychology. We call it the wise cell of um, design in neuroscience. We call it being made in God's image and spirituality. It's basically this inner core of wisdom that we have. We're using it now as we have this discussion. Everyone has it. Mm. We just need to develop it. So you come into the thing saying, gathering awareness, but it's not just you. It's you accepting your messy mind because that's part of life. It's totally okay. It's experimental. Can't control people or events or circumstances. This is what it is. This is the pattern. This is the depression. This is the anxiety. This is the situation. And you're gathering, and that, so that attitude, you then start gathering. What can I deal with today? I pick that apple. Hmm. So you start at the top of the tree, and that you gather awareness of your signals. So gathering awareness, step one, is all the context I've just painted, but it's gathering. It's you pick what you can handle today. And it's four categories of gathering that you do, four categories of apples if you want to put it that way. Hmm. The first one is the emotional warning signals. So it's like um, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, frustration, all, all of the above. Maybe you pick four apples, maybe you pick one. You do this over 21 days. You don't, I mean, over 63 days. You don't do it in just one day. Okay, okay. If, you de- if you detoxing trauma, it takes time. So it's just going to be a quick fix thing. And then you would gather, gather awareness of your, your physical warning signals. What's going on in your body? When we, store, when we experience something, not only do we store it in our brain physically as these protein tree-like structures, but we also store it in the DNA of our body and we store it in the gravitational fields of our mind. And that's moving, so it's in three places. So your body will also experience signals. And any kind of signal is like an alarm wakes you up. It's, it's meant to say, hey, there's something going on. So when I say gather awareness of depression, gather awareness of your body, maybe GI symptoms, maybe tension in your heart palpitations, tension in your shoulders, um, gather awareness of your behaviors, maybe you're withdrawing, maybe you're overthinking, um, gather awareness of your perspective, maybe you're looking at life and saying life sucks. Those mm-hmm. are four apples you would have picked. Mm-hmm. You're gathering awareness in this objective way of saying, okay, 
you, you use the word you, not I, it's wise mind, with messy mind, and you're picking out these things to try and start creating what's going on in my life, what is the pattern, and it's ordered, it's organized, it's systematized, that's the whole process of, you know, that's obviously the other four steps, and right. it's very specific, very, I'm giving you a very quick overview. But <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's the author of the new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five simple, scientifically proven steps to reduce anxiety, stress, and toxic thinking. She's also the host of the popular podcast called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. And Caroline will also be speaking at the B Church Conference on Friday, July the 30th at Community Christian Church in Naperville. To get tickets for that one-day conference, you can go to bechurchconference.com. Again, that's B, B-E, bechurchconference.com. And so, Caroline, you're going to be in our neck of the woods right out here at the B Church Conference. Uh, what, are you, what, what can people expect to hear from you if they sign up for that conference? What will you be sharing at the B Church Conference? Well, in a nutshell, how to clean up your mental mess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which, which is applying to all of us. There isn't anyone who's exempt. So it's nice to know that we all have a messy mind and everyone battles and it's totally normal. Yeah. And how to manage that. What is mind management, which is um, basically managing our mental mess, accepting that and tuning into our wise mind. So I'm going to explain the process like we've gone through it really quickly in the first half. I'll be explaining the process. I'll be showing some scientific studies, showing what's mm. happening in your brain, mm. how to do this. So essentially what I'm teaching in terms of you wanted in terms of the scriptural side is I'm teaching the science of how to bring all thoughts into captivity and renew your mind. Mm. And that's essentially because you say that, but what do you, how do you do it? Right. I'm going to be explaining the how do you do it? How do you get that depression and anxiety under control? And I'll be showing that with my research, what I've demonstrated is that we are empowered to be able to um, get our thinking um, to get to get control over our thoughts, which then enables us to get control over depression and anxiety and toxic thinking and burnout and overwhelm by up to eighty one percent, which is wow. phenomenal. I mean, wow. that's without any medication. Shows the power of the mind. Do we, you know, when we understand this, when we learn this, it's such a vital skill, just not spoken about enough. When you do that, we completely change how we function. Mm-hmm. So good. Caroline, I, I'm thinking of a listener right now who might just be feeling overwhelmed with stress and anxiety for whatever reason, whatever, you know, whatever they're going through right now. Do you have some type of word of encouragement for them or something that you would have them sort of grab onto to begin to take back control like you're talking about here? Absolutely. Well, the first thing is to, to realize that, um, you, you know, that what you're feeling is okay. I think it's so important. You know, the minute you tell yourself, okay, this is okay, there's a reason. There's a reason why I feel like this, why I'm showing up like this. You immediately do that, that 1400 neurophysiological response thing. So as soon as you tell yourself, hey, it's okay, um, there's a reason I feel like this. You, um, for example, one of the things that will happen is that your blood vessels around your heart will dilate, so you'll get more blood and oxygen flowing to your brain, and that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. You'll drop cortisol levels, you'll drop homocysteine levels, I mean, you, you, even your telomeres and your DNA will change. So you then automatically have more resilience. So it's to really, that's so important, and to be kind to yourself. I cannot tell you how that changes the physiology of the brain. It's unreal. People don't realize that. Wow. So that's the first thing. But people are really good at beating themselves up. And seeing themselves as the cause or, you know, going into victim mentality and blaming others. And all of those can really help, you know, facilitate more negativity. So feeling overwhelmed is a very common thing. It's okay. Give yourself that time to accept it. And then there's a, there's a little bit of brain preparation you can do on the spot that helps to reduce neurochemical chaos. And that is if you breathe in for three counts 
and then you breathe out for seven. But be very forceful with the seven, like you're really pushing it out. It almost will give you a slight sort of lightheadedness feeling between your eyes. Mm. And if you repeat, if you repeat that six to nine times, that's the that's more or less a minute to a minute and a half. You don't have to do that often. You can, I mean, that much. You can do it once for ten seconds. You can do it just depending on how overwhelmed you feel in the moment. Um, as you're doing that, though, you are giving your your brain a chance to adjust to the to the thoughts that are moving through your brain and, and creating a neurochemical chaos from the overwhelm. So the thoughts of I can't do this, this is too much, this is making me crazy. So you're kind of triaging as they would do in a medical situation where you triage, where you work out what's the most, let's do the most life before, a leg before, limb, that kind of, limb before life, sorry. Um, life, I said the wrong way around, life before limb. In other words, yeah. you triage, <laughs> what, yeah, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is you cannot think when you're in a state of, of high anxiety. Mm. So the most important thing is to get yourself calm. And there's many different ways, but that breathing three in seven out just counting it alone the counting process and the breathing it will immediately reduce the neurochemical chaos in the brain so that combo um, it's, it's okay I can feel like this it's totally normal um, there's a reason I feel like this let me breathe and then you can start gathering awareness of of that and, and go through the, the rest of the process of the neurocycle but those three steps alone will just you know those three things that I've mentioned alone will, will help a lot so good uh, and, and talk to us about the role of community. Why is friendship important or being part of a church community? What is the role of others in our lives as we battle things like anxiety and depression? Well, because we all battle anxiety and depression to different degrees, isn't anyone who's exempt. If you're human, you're going to battle. Mm-hmm. We need each other as a support system. We need to, we need each other to normalize it. We need each other to listen. The, the research shows, and I mean, we don't even need research to, to show this because it's evident. When you're feeling down and someone tells you, hey, I, underst- I don't understand what you're going through, but I'm here yeah. for you. I, you're not alone. You know, right. you're important. You're valuable. I hear you. I see you. you it changes how you see yourself. We, we, you know, there's a quantum physicist. Um, quantum physics is a fantastically spiritual and accurate and fundamental um, form of um, phys- science. And it's the most fundamental and accurate of sciences. And there's a, there's a saying in quantum physics that, that says it's not about you, it's about you in the world. Mm. And, that, and, and they actually show with very interesting experiments about how we enhance each other. So I teach a lot about enhancement versus competition. And that is uh, vital to recognizing we're not in competition with each other because there's something you can do that no one else can do. And once you get the competition mentality out and you get the enhancement mentality in and recognize we're there to help each other and support each other, that changes things tremendously. It increases our intelligence, our resilience, etc. But just the act of helping someone else and supporting someone else mm-hmm. increases your own physical health. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable wow. by like 68, like 68%. So, you know, and we see this, this research showing that if you just focus on yourself and you cut other people out and it's just all about me, myself, and I, mm. you increase your chance of cardiovascular issues by 42% in the wow. next 12 months. You know, so it's, it's not about I. It's about me in the world. It's about enhancement. It's about waves, the waves of, of energy that we, that we generate. Einstein's mm. work is, um, is about when two waves hit each other, they, they get bigger. But when so you want to enhance each other versus cancel each other out. I love that. Dr. Leaf, where can our listeners find you, find your research, connect with you, maybe even find out about the app? Tell us how we can find all things Dr. Caroline Leaf. Oh, thank you. It's, and my, my social media handles are Dr. Caroline Leaf, and from there they can get to everything. My webpage is drleaf.com. 
and also my uh, my peeing up your mental mess is the name of my podcast and the app is called Neurocycle and that's available with iTunes and Google Play and it's really nice to really I'd really walk you through like therapy me walking you through this process of mind management. Awesome. Dr. Caroline Leaf, again, author of a new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five Simple, Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking. We would encourage you to go get that book. As she said, it's a very timely book and one that we all could use. You can also listen to her popular podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Uh, Go find the app, also the NeuroCycle app. And again, uh, Dr. Leaf will be speaking at the B Church Conference on Friday, July the 30th at Community Christian Church in Naperville. So to get tickets, uh, there's all sorts of people. Uh, Dr. Leaf will be there, Tony Valdez, Daryl Strawberry, former Major League Baseball player, Carlos Whitaker, and others will be at that conference. To get tickets, go to the, go to bechurchconference.com. That's bechurchconference.com. Caroline, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. You asked excellent questions, and I hope it helped people. Oh, we appreciate that, and I'm sure that it did. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromms. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, Aubrey, it is the summertime. Yeah, a lot of us are going, what, what's my rhythm going to be like? And you pointed us to an interesting article, if not an extreme article, at Relevant Magazine. See, you're learning. Now, Ian used to know this very much. I love lists. I love okay, you know, whether okay. we create the list or we do an article that's got a list. So we're going to end the show with a list. But it's about this idea of simplification, this idea at Relevant Magazine. It says 10 ways to simplify your life. Uh, but Aubrey, don't you feel like as as we are getting older, I know you're the young one on the show by Obviously. like six months or whatever, right, but like right. as your kids get older, as your house just gets more and more cluttered, as your schedule gets more and more cluttered, mm-hmm. don't you just feel yourself drawn to some of these questions of like simplification? Like how can I simplify my stuff, my schedule, my family? Like how do we do this? I find myself drawn to stuff like this right I now. I mean, there are times I feel like I, I tell Kevin, I want us to move just so we have an opportunity to like go through everything and get rid of things. Like I, yes, I love the conversation about simplifying, 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 just because it feels more peaceful, honestly. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what this article gets at. 10 ways to simplify your life. I'll read them. And then I want you to answer, does this seem good or doable or super over the top stressful? Okay. Okay, Gotcha. And then maybe how is there a way to massage this? Like, oh, maybe not that, but I'll do this portion. All right. Number one, practice the one for one rule. How many things do you own? He says, my rule is that I'm not able to answer that question with it. If I'm not able to answer that question with an exact number, then I have too many possessions. Oh, we started by donating most of our wedding presents. And then he goes on to say that they have a one for one rule for every new item acquired. One item must be donated or recycled. It's a great way to keep us from hoarding. Aubrey, what do you think of the one for one rule? Yeah. So I don't necessarily think you have to practice a one for one rule, but I definitely, when I get new clothes or my kids get new shoes or whatever, I go through everything and just, I mean, I almost do like a whole house, like 
toys. We're done with clothes. We're done with, and I just purge. I'm a pretty consistent purger. I don't necessarily do like, okay, get this, throw that away or, or not throw it away, but you know, donate it. But I, uh, I, I definitely am a purger. I feel like that's really helpful. I think I am too. Like I will, stuff will just go. And then one day I'm just like, I want to throw everything out. <laughs> yeah, that's how I do it. I do it in like, like an emotional, you know, moment where I'm like, everything's gone now. I can't take it anymore. I found myself really jealous of my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They had a, uh, in their driveway for a couple of days, they had a dumpster and completely filled it. And I was like, oh. I just want a dumpster. Please yes. let me. Yeah, it's so fantastic. Uh, one thing that I do is I keep a bag for Goodwill always in the laundry room. And so anytime there's something, I just kind of consistently fill it up. When it's filled, we take it. And then I grab another one. And I just kind of have that going as part of the regular rhythm of our family life. One place not to do the one-for-one rule is with kids. Like, I have one, I donate one. (laughs) Right. That's not acceptable. That's true. (laughs) Number two, use only the housing space you need. All right. This one's going to – we're going to struggle with this one. He says – there's a proverb that says the man with a thousand rooms still sleeps in one bed. And he talks Mm -hmm. about how they now live – in a 248-square-foot uh, 1975 Airstream trailer. Wow. While you don't have to move into a house on wheels, he says, it might be worth exploring. Do you really need that extra room, double garage, or oversized living room? Only the space you need. What do you think? Oh, this one I struggle with, especially having three kids, because like I want my own space. I want them to have their own space. I want separation. <laughs> You know what yes. I mean? So I uh, I could never live in an Airstream trailer. My dad no. had one. We used to have sleepovers in it because we thought it was fun, but not living. I don't like the tiny house concept. I like space in my house. And the I, question is, who gets to determine what space I need? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. exactly. It depends on the day. Okay. Number three, tone down the technology. Uh, he goes on to say, people think we're strange. We don't own cell phones. We buy used car and used t- laptops. We don't own a TV. So you're getting a picture for who these people are. Yeah, right? yeah. But, again, I feel like there's a version of that that's realistic. You don't always have to be on your phone. You can turn the TV off. You know, right. there, are, there are ways to balance your technology. And I think you and I have talked about the dangers of being addicted to your phones and yep. stuck to your phone. So uh, speaking of addictions, number four, break your addictions. He mm. says, life is far more simple and freeing when you cut. Uh, addictions like porn or coffee or smoking or drinking or betting on sports or buying lottery tickets or Facebook. That is quite the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, And so he goes on to talk about cutting things that may be addictive. And I think that's a helpful one. Let me jump. uh, Let me keep going. Yep. Number five. Here's a tough one. It's where I'm going to put this on you. Learn to say no. He says, my natural temptation is to say yes to every speaking request or social engagement, but my wife, thankfully, guards our schedule. Mm. We need to say no to some things. This one's an interesting one coming out of COVID, but Aubrey, what do you think about learning to say no so you can say yes to other things like spending time with God or with your close friends and your family, reading and other things? Yeah, I'm actually really good at this, believe it or not. I wasn't always as like a 20-something, but as my time, I feel like, has gotten more full with work and my kiddos and my... Like, I want those things to be the things that I invest in, the people that I invest in. And so I'm pretty good at just saying, I'm so sorry, I don't have time right now. I bless you and I love you. Or, you know, I only say yes to certain speaking requests if it works in our family schedule. And what about you? I feel like you are you have a hard time saying no. Is that right? 
Uh, I would say I used to. Okay. I'm better at saying no now. I'm also married to somebody who might be too good at saying no. Ah, <laughs> so yes, gotcha. The introvert is, in the relationship. Yeah. It is the beauty of marriage where we, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of that yin to the yang. And so I would say this was a bigger struggle for us early on where I wanted to say yes to everything. I'm a new youth pastor. We got to go to this and go to this and yep. go to, and Kara's like, uh, we're newly married. I just want to go on a date. You know, yeah, like I want to be with my husband. Yes. Interesting. I think age has made me more of an introvert and I'm just like, nope, I can say no to that. Yeah. But, you know, that is a hard one in general. All right. Number six, invest in a small circle of friends. I feel like that has to do with much more of a personality type. Don't sure. you? Because some people are like, I just like to be in a big yeah. room of people. Yeah, that's that's definitely a personality type thing. I agree with that. All right, we have a minute left. So I'm going to okay. read the next four and then okay. you just pick one. Yeah. Uh, number seven, get out of debt. Number eight, remember, this is all about simplifying your life. Number eight, simplify your work routine. Number nine, cut out time wasters. And number 10, this is for us pastors, find a faith community. All right, grab one of those. Yeah, I'll go. I'll grab get out of debt because there have been times when Kevin and I have had school debt. I mean, I'm in grad school right now, you know, and uh, we've had credit card debt in the past. And that always has felt so stressful. I hate having debt hanging over me. Now, I'm not talking about household debt. Like, of course, we're paying our mortgage consistently. But like the when you don't need debt and you have it, that feels stressful. So yes. I love the idea. No debt. You just can walk a little bit freer when yeah. you can live debt free. Absolutely. I like number nine there. Cut out time wasters. Like I feel that in my life sometimes where it's like, I'm so busy. And then you look at your day and you're like, yeah, probably, not a, yeah, probably if I hadn't been on Twitter as much as I had. Right, or right. I hadn't done this. If I wasn't that, playing that, Candy Crush for 30 exactly. minutes, that would exactly. have does, saved my life. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't just go do mindless fun things. But right. I, if you looked at your life and like how much time wasting am I doing? That's probably interesting. All right. Well, those were interesting ways to simplify your life. So many of us feel like our lives are overcomplicated. Thought that would be a fun way to end the show. We're glad that you joined us today. Join us tomorrow from four until six. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.